Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business Fun Podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman, your host. My guest today is someone I was really excited to have a a chance to chat to. uh, Giles Edwards from GASP in London in the UK. And we will get into it because we had a, this may be the longest episode in the Business of Fun history, but I think it's totally worth it because we covered a lot of ground. First, before I talk to you about Giles, I want to tell you about my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Again, I've been looking and telling you about research and looking at the data and what drives behaviors. Since tickets have gone back on sale, since lockdowns have started to lessen and tickets have more readily gone on sale, depending on the month, uh, the refund protection uptake rate by consumers and fans and guests has been between 30 and 70 percent. Before the pandemic, it might likely be somewhere in the vicinity of 15, 10 to 15 percent. That's a huge change in behavior, and that's something you should be aware of. So talk to Kat, Simon, Kath, Haley uh, at Booking Protect to find out if refund protection is right for you and how you can offer it to your guests. The bonus is the fact that it also offers you a new stream of revenue. So check them out, bookingprotect.com. Make sure you check out my friends at ActivityStream. They have a new email marketing platform called Activate uh, that will help you re-engage with your audience. Hopefully you've had the opportunity to communicate with your audiences throughout the pandemic. If you haven't, the Activate email system has been designed to help you understand how to communicate with people now, what's going to be meaningful to them, and hopefully get you back in the position to start offering up some magical moments once again. So check them out at activitystream.com. In the last episode, I had a chance to talk to a guy called Simon Severino from strategysprints.com, and we talked about the power of Net Promoter Score and how his business uses Net Promoter Score to constantly innovate, stay in touch with the market, and renew his product offering. The crazy thing is, is back in the early part of 2021, I talked to my friends at Eventelect and we created a Net Promoter Score worksheet that you can have by simply emailing me, daviddavewakeman.com. I will send you a copy. Uh, the Eventelect has a really great story to tell with the Net Promoter Score worksheet. Uh, check them out, eventelect.com. Send me an email, daviddavewakeman.com, and get the newsletter. Finally, if you haven't already, maybe you do because you're listening to this thing, uh, get the Talking Tickets newsletter. You can go to my website, DaveWakeman.com, and there's a newsletter pop-up that will give it to you. Um, sign up there. Um, or go TalkingTickets.Substack.com to sign up. Um, the DaveWakeman.com will get you everywhere. But check it out. Five stories every or every week, or you know, five, five tent poles each week uh, with at analysis, action items, uh, ways you can incorporate these stuff into your business. It's a really great resource. It's got a tremendously high open rate. Uh, I get more emails about the thing. I get all kinds of stuff, more everything from it. So it's talking tickets dot substack.com. And I'm going to include in the show notes for this episode, a survey to help me deliver better value to you here on the business of fun and on the Talking Tickets newsletter, and it really helps me a tremendous amount if you fill the thing out. All right? Fair, right? It's worth the cost of the podcast, yeah? All right, great. Now, Giles. Giles, sorry. Giles. Giles, Giles. That's the American in me. The Jay Giles band. Giles Edwards. 
is a really great guy, uh, a big Spurs fan. I am supposed to remind you uh, that he is often shows up on the Echoes of Glory podcast. But he also has a really great podcast that he does for people in marketing and strategy called Call to Action. Uh, one of these days, I hope I get to be a guest on Call to Action. Uh, it is a goal of now. Um, and the, he is behind and worked with Ryan Wallman, who was a guest on the podcast before, on the book Delusions of Brander. They have a sequel coming out called How Brands Blow. Uh, Gasp has also released its first children's book called Adele Writes an Ad. Um, Giles is a really great marketer and he's a really great strategist and he runs a really great agency in London. So I wanted to have him on because one of the keys, uh, one of the things I've been talking about a lot here on the podcast or on the newsletter is doing proper marketing. And Giles and I have a, a similar background as far as our training goes. You know, some of our, some of the people who have taught us things, some of the people we talk to and hang out with, uh, some of the reference points that we have are very similar. And so I wanted to have him talk, uh, come on and talk about proper marketing. And we talk, so we talk about proper marketing. We talk about um, understanding what the practice of marketing looks like. Uh, we talk about ambiguous terms in marketing and how to like push back at some of the BS that often come floats around. Uh, Giles talks about some ads that have he's seen that have had an impact that are good. We talk about the context of your marketing and advertising messages. We talk about branding. Uh, we talked about uh, lessons learned and we talked about, you know, what's the right thing to invest in and what's not the right thing to invest in. We talk about things like engagement and speaking in absolutes. We talk about the impact, that, and the long, especially the long-term impact that the pandemic might have on people. We talk about attitudes and segmentation. We even get into a little bit about pricing. You know how much I love my pricing talk. Uh, this is a really, really good episode. It is a little bit longer than normal, but I think it's totally worth it. It was And it was fun because we laughed a lot and we goofed on each other a lot. And it was great. So I hope you dig this episode with Giles Edwards on The Business Fun. So I want to welcome Giles Edwards from Gasp to the Business of Fun podcast. Giles, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Dave. How are you? You know, I'm great. This is like going to be a lot of fun. I, I, I warned you beforehand that this is uh, that I, I take myself extremely seriously. Um, <laughs> that, that this is going to be like probably the most serious podcast. Like we're not going to flog yeah. these these um, these farcical books like Delusions of Brandeur. You know, it's <laughs> not like we ever had Ryan Wallman on here to talk about these things. No, we're not going to talk about how brands blow or any of this stuff. So we're, we're going to keep it serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no joy. No, exactly. None of that. There's no fun on this business of fun podcast today. That's it. We're completely. Why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if people don't know about the Call to Action podcast, that's your podcast, and it's great. You have like some fantastic guests on, and I would encourage everybody to listen, right? Because there's some some really really cool interviews and some really really cool ideas. Um, I'm really guilty of listening, jotting down notes. Uh, tweeting out long threads about the thing because I get like a tremendous amount of value. Now that blown smoke up your uh, up uh, up your tuckers, I'm going to start <laughs> out with my own version of seven quick fire questions for you ah. to start this out. And I have yeah. not warned you. I just told you they would add very little educational value <laughs> to the whole thing. So, 
I have seven of them here, and they are they are ridiculous. What is going to warn me now? <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get through, but I'm going to start out with. <laughs> All right, so Nuno out or Enoch out? And let, before you answer. <laughs> I started out with Jose out versus Enoch out, and I realized that everybody hated Jose, except for the only people that didn't want Jose out were Arsenal fans, and they suck anyway. So, uh, <laughs> Nuno out or Enoch out? <laughs> oh man! See, I don't like not backing Nuno. I don't like not backing him. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm one of the few fans of Daniel Levy. I think he's done a magic job. Uh, so if I had to go, I'd probably say Enoch just because their time has come. And even though I'm underwhelmed with Nuno, I feel like that everyone deserves a bit of backing. Yeah, yeah. I um, I agree with you though on the Daniel Levy thing. It's, I think it's it's easy if you're not if you don't run a business or you haven't been around like sports business or a big business to demean what Daniel Levy's done. And you know, world class facility, world class stadium. Um, in the states, the Spurs brand is huge. So I, you know, I, I like Nuno. Um, I like Daniel Levy. I don't really have any problem with Enoch. They're trying to run a sustainable business. Um, it would have yeah. been easier if I kept it as Jose out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that was <laughs> I, hope I hope they get easier. Yeah, uh, Levy's a victim of his own success, basically. Yes, yeah, let's right. let's do number two. Let's get let's number get an easy two. one in. Let's number two. Okay, so Facebook, bad thing or worst thing ever? Uh, worst thing. Okay, worst thing. Ever. Okay, worst thing. Ever. All right. Well, see, like I, easy, right? That was easy. I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I was like when I, that was like the first one, and it was because I was like, well, how do, what do I do? And I was like, I can work harder at this. I can prepare better. I can do a better job. So that one was that's a throwaway one. That was a tap third, in. Yeah. The third one though, this one's going to be interesting because I have two favorite brands of beer uh, when I go to London, um, and I and I and it's probably just because when I'm in London, you know. I sometimes don't get a chance to like explore a lot. And if I did, I probably would have different selections, but I, there's two like craft beer brands that I like. And so I'm going to be curious to see which one you pick uh, Beaver town or brew dog. Beaver town, Beaver town. Now why? Yeah. There's a Tottenham link. They've got a brewery in the stadium. Uh, the cans are sexier. The beers taste better. And as far as I'm aware, they're less full of shit. Okay. That's fair. I, I, I like them both. Uh, the Beaver Town branding, though, is, is, is pretty phenomenal. And yeah. I've had some really great beers from both of them. Uh, I like it because for some reason, BrewDog has recognized that when I, I'm an American that travels to London in the in the normal times fairly regularly, and I go to their pubs, so then they'll hold stuff aside for me and they'll put stuff away for me. So it's very, always very nice to me. Uh, but I like both of them. So, yeah. <laughs> so the answer is it's a push. Uh, number four. All right, so this this is going to be. Uh, I think this is a good one. Uh, I definitely have a strong opinion on this because um, a lot of times, if I bring my family over, we will get a VR, a Verbo, a VRBO, and so we have a TV and like washer dryer and everything. And you know, if you have young ch- kids, you know, like your day ends about eight o'clock, right? So then you get to watch primetime TV in London, which is amazing. By the way, it's a true joy to visit London and watch <laughs> primetime TV. <laughs> So the question is, Love Island or I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say both and neither? I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for TV series like that. I I get it. The thing is, it's I I made a very deliberate 
um, uh, a very deliberate move to stop watching EastEnders, which is one of our UK soap operas, because I, I didn't like the hold it had over me. I was so wedded to the days and times it was showing. This was this was the yeah, before Sky Plus and On Demand and all of that stuff. Um, but the, the truth is, with both of those shows, if my if I watch the first episode, I'm all in. So I need to avoid it. <laughs> I feel yeah. the same way. You have Celebrity Big Brother. I don't know if you have a regular Big Brother. But every summer I go, I'm not going to watch that show. <laughs> no. And I watch the first one. I'm like, oh, where do they get these freaking cast members? And then I'm like, well, yeah. dead. And it's, it sucks. <laughs> it's totally awful. I find, I find it very, I find it weirdly reassuring, especially Love Island, because I, I'm one of those horrible, <laughs> horrible people that immediately dislikes people on Love Island. And yet by the end of it, I'm rooting for all of them. Like, like it, it's, I find it reassuring that I can see and hear and speak to, or at least learn or, and experience someone who I in, instinctively disagree with and, and just don't feel like I have anything in common with, and yet find common ground somehow and yeah. and see the good in them, which is which is actually probably nothing to do with the Love Island producers. They probably don't realise that that's going on, but it's a good thing. But I think it makes me hopeful about just life in general, that I can see somebody and go, I don't have anything in common with them, but then over time I go, you know, they're not a bad person. They're, yeah. they're just looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got apps like them, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, this, here's, a, here's a tap in before the um, – actually, mm. this could be a complicated this because uh, question number six is going to be, um, I think, really like the best one of the whole of the whole time. I think question six. So question five is flake or double-decker? Oh, Flake, yeah, flake, flake, hundred percent. I think Double Decker wants to be a flake, but but is confused. Okay, but flake is yeah the original. Yeah, yeah. I I was going for not what my favorite one was, but like what was sort of the consensus of favorite chocolate bars were. I love those Cadbury's with the Oreos on, and I you know I might <laughs> only eat one a year, but I love those. Those are my favorite. And uh, I have some people I work with in the UK, and they always they send me like packages. <laughs> because <laughs> like, they just know that's like the only thing that like that and they'll send me Fortnum and Mason's hot mustard <laughs> like, like, you know I can get both of those things in the states I just try not to <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want to pay for it Dave uh, I think my right, real so answer is Snickers but Leo let's, let's yeah oh yeah 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 that, that's that's right I, I there's and I love a, a, a regular Mars bar because there's something about just like a plain Mars bar. It's like very, very good. Um, all right. Question six, as promised. Now, this is going to be, this is probably, number one, I know it's going to elicit a tremendous amount of replies in like any LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, Twitter posts or Facebook posts. <laughs> Guaranteed to fill my inbox. Uh, yours, I'm going to, I'll blank out your email so nobody knows how to get you. <laughs> but Simon Sinek or Gary V? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Hitler or Mussolini? Oh my oh, god! I guess we could do. Uh, <laughs> and we could throw in like uh, I don't even know who we would throw in Simon Sinek, Gary V, or uh, we'd have to throw in somebody that we liked. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> Worst one ever. Oh. Worst one ever. Well, who's worse? <laughs> who's worse? 
I, oh man, I, 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 do you know what? It's a weird thing. I, I've had conversations, uh, one with a good friend of mine who I know from a tweet that to you today is desperately trying to stitch me up on the Simon Sinek route. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and also with a guest we had on Call to Action once, and she convinced me, although I don't think it lasted, she convinced me that it was a good idea to not only read but follow Simon, um, even even though the chances are highly likely that you would disagree with the majority of what you then read or were exposed to, simply because it is important not to be so, you know, echo chambery in in, in in what you're listening to and reading and so on and so forth. So I think she had a valid point there on both of them. I, I despise less what they say, but what it what it means to people who then repeat it. I have massive issues with that. But the sad, I mean, the truth is, I don't doubt both of them are are very genuine, nice, honest people. Mm-hmm. I just wish that I just wish they'd shut up. <laughs> yes, I um, and it, I think it becomes a hard thing because when I lived in New York, I knew a, a lot of like the the Vaynerchuk people, right? Like around. Mm. And they were all incredibly nice people. So I don't have any personal animosity towards anybody. I don't really have the same um, the same connection to Simon Sinek. Um, I do find that, like like you said, it's the the people who like spout the stuff without any context or any meaning or anything. Because I, I got mansplained, and the only way to describe it is that it was completely <laughs> mansplained. Uh, start with why during a sad, uh, strategy workshop I was doing recently, and I was just like, what the hell is going on here? Um, yeah. I, I was just like, going, I'm going to just let you run for a few minutes because what you're saying is making you look like a moron. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I think that it's their ideas might not even be bad if there was like, real context around them or there was like real meaning attached to it but what happens too often at least to me is it becomes so, so soundbite driven and yeah the sound bites really don't do them service if that even if the ideas are value valid some of the ideas are ridiculous too though so, <laughs> yeah so, but you know, and, and, and they do and they do sound so easy and appealing the trouble is there's there's a lot of there's a lot of danger with say for example hustle culture and we touched on it before we started recording especially during the pandemic of you know that kind of bro culture of you're not hustling hard enough there's a lot of there's a lot of damage maybe passively done via a lot of of the the way that what is said by those uh, guys is interpreted and i think that's what i have an issue with it's less so it's almost like you know that saying guns don't kill people people do it's almost like they're guns of sorts from a marketing perspective and people are taking it and using it to make the most ridiculous decisions um but well and and it's good that like see i lied this is like i said i was gonna have no redeeming value these quick fire questions and here we are gonna have a serious conversation here um one of the challenges with the hustle culture thing though is like to me it steals attention away from the bigger structural issues that are going on in like business in culture in society right because a lot of the misogyny and a lot of the um the hustle, a lot of the battle between like, you know, ageism and all these things, they have fundamental roots in the way that like the economy has been set up over the last 30 or 40 years, you know, the policies, the way that taxes are levied on people, all of these things. And so 
having people fight about like, you know, because that's what a lot of the argument in, in marketing seems to me to boil down to. It's like you have these young mm. people who have not had a didn't really get a chance to get started. And then by the time they're like 35 or 40, they're, they're shuttled out of the room and they're, they're, their careers are over. So they're scrambling. Right. And then you have these people who are over 40. You know, and they've been shuttled out of the room and, and like they're just learning their profession by the time you hit 40. And so mm-hmm. you have this thing and really it's a system that it's a or it's a sign that the system's broken. Yeah. And, you know, and, but if you keep everybody fighting, they can't really turn their attention to the real problem. And, you know, and that's to me, that's like one of the problems with, with hustle culture is that like, hey, look, if we keep fighting, you know, these people are like crushing it and grinding it and doing all this crap. You can't necessarily turn your attention to what really matters. And and that's really where I, I find it dangerous because you brainwash people into like, if you're not making a hundred pieces of content a day, then you're losing. Mm. Right. And if you're not, you know, um, I, I think, I don't know if, she, if you are a friend with her as well, but Zoe Skamen, right. Like she's like, when people are telling me not to hustle or like, I'm, I'm setting a bad example. And I was like, well, I think I know she's doing it in the right manner right because she goes mm. this is a li- these opportunities are a limited time a limited space because there's been times when i've had a lot that i couldn't do or didn't have a lot and when and there'll be times again when i'm not as busy or not as like you know and i think the context matters right and but when you watch these hustle culture creatures that was a good one i'm going to use that later but they, <laughs> it's all hustle all the time right and there's yeah. no context there's not like the, the context that zoe put forth which is like yeah. hey look this is a limited time and i'd be crazy not to take advantage of some of these opportunities as opposed to like well, if you're not doing it 24 7 365 days for 75 years what the fuck are you doing man yeah and, that, and that's my uh, problem with it yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my answer too. So everyone who heard that, just pretend that was me giving that answer. Yeah. But it's context is key. You, you, it was, yeah, yeah. That's a very smart answer. Very you good. Gave me, First take I, as well. Exactly. <laughs> right, Zoe's so number great because Zoe, Zoe, Zoe approaches everything with the caveat of, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's try. And that's what I think most marketers need to understand and adopt. Anyone like Gary or Simon who deals in absolutes, stay clear of. That's that's yeah. the probably the conclusion there. I think. I, well, well, that's what I really appreciate about Zoe. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I I I I, I think the world of her. I think she's great, and I can't wait to get back to London so we can go drinking. Right. Uh, <laughs> her and Amy Keane, we're gonna do tequila shots. Uh, uh, nice. <laughs> um, it was the it was the joke that we were trading the other day. Um, you know, but it's that that approach that like everything's an experiment and you know like really your business should be like a bit of a laboratory and i don't know if she says it that way exactly but that's the way i look at it yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know you know because and she's like i like it because she pulls stuff from way like out you know she'll go to like eastern cultures and she grabs ideas from like places that was a lot of people won't see and it's you know i think it's the same for you it's the same for me uh and it's great it's just there are no there are rules and, and and you know markers that you can look for, but there are no absolutes because life is constantly changing. People are constantly changing. The world is constantly changing. Yeah, uh, but that's you know neither here nor there um, because we have number seven. Yeah, that's number good. seven. I promise you will be um, like picking your favorite child. <laughs> Easy. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> See, this is why you only have one. So <laughs> I got to say, mate, I got to say. That's what I'm saying. So you're yeah. in trouble. I've, only <laughs> one. I've got one, so I'm good. Uh, but how I've got Annabelle and not Annabelle. 
yeah. <laughs> how brands blow or delusions of grand of brand <laughs> oh, oh, oh man i mean delusions of brand is and was massive and it's huge and i adore everything about it and everything that we did together for that book how brands blow is going to be bigger and better and noisier so it's uh yeah that's a tough one let's go how brands blow recency bias we'll we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, just write it off yeah we'll do yeah. it okay. all right so yeah. all right so now that we got those quick fire questions out of the way like we, we we'll have a serious we'll have a serious we'll go back to being serious now um the first <laughs> i have i have a strong sensation that this is not going to be at all serious so it's totally fine <laughs> good um so okay so one thing though that i have been telling people and i God, I'm like a broken record, and, and probably what you're going to say, just like we answered that Gary V question, you're like, well, that would be the exact same answer I gave. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. I know right now that I'm going to get, you're going to give me an answer, and I'm going to be able to go, what Giles said. Um, you know, if, yeah. so you take, with, with your clients a gasp, you take people through a process you call proper marketing. Mm. And I talk about being a proper marketer all the time. I know that we both steal the proper marketing title uh, or like saying from uh, both of our, our marketing professors, Mark Ritson, uh, because he's always ta- talking about being a proper marketer. Mm. In, in your definition, the way that you teach people and the way you guide your clients, can you define what proper marketing is? Mm. Yeah, I can try. I can try. And then you can you can repeat it, but make it better. Uh, like, like, like the rich bus. So we, <clears throat> the caveat that see what it is. The caveat with proper is, um, is we very reluctantly use the term proper marketing, and it's been an observation that I think we've come to in our 12, 12 and a half years of running our little agency of creative misfits and nut jobs, and it's because as a whole we seem to be in the minority of marketing agencies that understand and practice marketing. And that sounds like a really arrogant claim, and it might be an arrogant claim, but it's nonetheless true. And during these 12 12 plus years, we've been called everything from different to odd to rare to uncommon. And initially, that was a bit of a concern until we you know, we looked around and uh, looked around at our peers and the, our, the agencies we were competing with. And to us, proper marketing, to overly simplify, is following the three key stages that you are also uh, familiar with and, and practice yourself, which is a, a diagnosis or research phase, followed by your strategy and ultimately your tactics. But then crucially back to that diagnosis stage, and it obsessively diagnoses and it's obsessively researches to understand the context. Context has already come up once as a, as, as a word, and it's 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 um, a lot of the problems we might get into the uh, ambiguous terms that get thrown around especially in digital advertising but a lot of them don't have any context associated and they're oversimplifying things into you know numerical information but too few miss that first all-important stage of research and diagnosis and it's like it's like playing blind if you're betting in in brag in a card game and and without any financial benefit of, of, of playing blind and only with added risk and so put another way it's it's stupid. It's dumb. I mean, it's it's very com. I have very complex and almost uh, paradoxical opinions of the gambling industry. But to use another an- analogy, it would be like betting on your football team 
without reading up on the form or the fitness of your own players or understanding the opposition or you know the weather the journey to the ground and everything is relative and unless you're in that minute few your likelihood to win is determined at least as much by the team you're up against as your own team Exactly. And that applies to football, it applies to horse racing, it applies to brands. And so I think the short answer to your question, really, aside from those three key stages, is, is we research and diagnose, and, and too few do. They don't understand the context of what they're trying to achieve. They just go in straight to that, you know, that stage of communications. And we, we challenge our clients as well. We're, we're quite proudly not easy to work with as an agency. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're not obnoxious, but we do challenge our clients. And I've always believed that a good agency should be more like your personal trainer at a gym than your granny that just nods along and says, yes, dear, um, mm -hmm. with the view that if you look back in a year's time, there'll be results. Yes. Oh, no, that, that being more like a gym trainer as opposed to your granny. I think I only realized that about myself over the last like maybe year or so is that I, I, I well how do I want to put it I do end up being friends and like friendly with my clients because most of them stay around for a long time right like the average client I end up working with for several years you know um, a lot of times three four five years is not uncommon to work with somebody <clears throat> but the thing is is like I'm not giving them the rote answer or I'm not just going like oh of course that idea is genius well, no. What's the data say, right? What's what is yeah. what's your position in the market, right? Um, have we, you know, what what assumptions are we making that probably aren't true now, right? Mm. And let's look at this. Um, and one of the things you talked about though is people want to jump right into the communications. They don't want to do the research. They don't want to do the diagnosis. And you talked about ambiguous terms. And I know mm. that like. For me, one of the huge ambiguous terms, which we'll come back to because we, we I think we're both rooted in strategy probably mm -hmm. pretty heavily, um, but digital is a, you, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned digital just now. And I think that like the search for big data and like mm -hmm. digital will save, it drives a lot of this challenge of people going straight to comms and straight, because they think that this reactive data or this, um, you know, the data that you get from purchase patterns or after the fact is actually what's going to help you move forward. And it's, um, I find that's often like steers people in a bad direction and it actually helps, it keeps them from, it doesn't help them, it keeps them from making better marketing decisions because they go like, well, what people have always done is going to stay the same, which is what that purchase data and some of this, you know, some of this big data teaches people. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm completely um, off the mark there. No, no, that sounds sounds bang on. Sounds bang on to me. And 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 the trouble is, um, when when people think of brands and when you're dealing with clients who ultimately understand they need to manage and grow and invest in their brand, it's a it's a very complex thing to wrap your head around. Without, you know, with, with all due respect to the far smarter CEOs that I work with, when they try and think of brand, their brain hurts because it's not a rational thing. It's an irrational, horrible, slippery little fella. And it's really difficult to understand how it operates and how it's grown and how to nurture it. So 
they will gravitate understandably to things that are easier to process and easy to understand. And, and whilst I'm a fan of all marketing tools that are available to us, and some of those, of course, fall within the digital advertising remit, I equally think it's important to question the analytics and the data um, and interrogate it and make sure that the assumptions you're making about what it's telling you is true. Well, let me ask you too then, because the well, uh, I think probably a huge ambiguous term for people has become brand because brand gets thrown, like just like data and just like strategy, brand gets thrown around without any relevant context applied to it, without mm. any realistic meaning, right? Because you have... I don't want, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm beating up on anybody from our quick fire questions, but somebody like Gary Vee, right, who's like, you know, yeah. talking about personal brand and like throws the brand word around, or at least in the past, he's thrown it around a lot more than like would make me feel comfortable because, again, it's easy to latch on to. It sounds like, you know, what you're talking about most of it's bullshit, um, you know, and so when you're dealing with people, because, again, we come from the same like sort of school of marketing where you have to, it's not a brand building versus activation thing. It's you have to do both. And, mm. you know, in the mix of it depends on the industry you're taught you're in and depends where you are. Um, yeah. The rule of thumb, right. is like, if you're in a, you know, FMCG, it's 40 to you know, 60, 40 long and short. Right. But if you're B2B, which a lot of my people are, it's gotta be 50, somewhere around 50, 50. Right. It, but it's long and short. How do you help people see this? Because I think with a lot of people that listen to this podcast, they think that, you know, I get, well, let me back it up. A lot of places, a lot of organizations and teams that are not the Spurs, I've, you know, because the Spurs, like we said at the start, Daniel Levy's done a great job of building up the Spurs brand. Um, mm. Are the brand codes always what we need them to be? Because uh, the Spursy is still a word that sticks up. You know, but they've done a great job of like understanding brand values, brand codes, putting those out there. A lot of places in the, in the states have not done that. They've allowed their brands to erode uh, and they don't they don't even see it. Right. Because nobody's doing brand tracking. Nobody's paying attention to their brand. In your work, how do you teach these reluctant CMOs, these reluctant partners, the importance of the brand? Because that's something I struggle with helping people see sometimes mm. too and it's because of that sort of it's become ambiguous it's become a term that like can be meaningless in a lot of ways yeah no it's it's it's, it's tricky it's tricky and I, I i'm yet to meet someone who finds that conversation easy and i think it depends on who's receiving the uh, the information and advice but for starters we show them the empirical evidence that does now exist thanks to smarter men like les Burnett and peter field we show them the huge data bank of ipa data that demonstrates the value of price one of the first um if it's needed one of the first kind of brand 101 type conversations we have with clients is we just we present an axis of brand on one end and commodity on the other, and we talk about the benefits of moving from one to the other. So as a, an example, commodity might be a bottle of unbranded water, and on the other end of the, the, the brand commodity axis, you've got Evian. And with that value, with that badge value, with that brand, you can charge a price premium, you can expect more loyalty, you can expect more repeat purchase. And you can now back that up with data. I think the key, I think that, that that does go a long way. I think it's too easy to 
promote the need for brand building at the expense of activation and actually come across like an idiot uh, come across like one of the marketing color innerers if that's even a, even a word because we don't understand the financial realities of a lot of businesses so i know you do a lot of b2b we're probably 80 to 90 percent b2b client base and the reality is some of our clients have quarterly targets to hit and there is real pressure and real need to demonstrate uh, success on a more on a short-term scale as well as delivering the long-term uh, brand benefits so we do need to we do need to manage that and we do need to understand all of the pressures that they're under because they're they're under huge pressure yeah. we we typically do a lot we do do research we don't do brand tracking in the ideal sense and scale of brand tracking because it's often uh, it's often prohibitive and, and, and costly. However, what we do do is is almost identical in as much as we can get a representative sample of the market and we can carry out a very relatively simple brand survey. We can demonstrate their funnel data and compare it to the competitors and understand where the gaps are. And nine times out of 10, if not more, they're not where the, the CEO or client thinks they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a key part of that process is, is, is the client understanding that a brand, a brand doesn't exist in their office. It doesn't exist in their head. It exists entirely and only by the people who experience the brand, not the marketing director who wants to push out a new campaign, not the CEO who might be a founder or co-founder of the brand. They have an intended brand positioning, of course, and, and, and so they should, but ultimately, brand is elusive and it can only exist in the minds of the, of the market, of the people they're trying to target. I'll give you a good example, actually, Dave. Sorry to cut you off. No. A couple of hours ago, a couple of hours ago, I was out with Beth, who works here. She's a colleague of mine, and we walked past a massive um, HSBC campaign, proudly shouting, "Gender is too fluid for borders." Fine, great, but if you go onto their site and you try and open an account, you're given a very limited option of gender, male or female, and the truth is the. The guys who rolled out that campaign for HSBC with good intentions probably believe that was now more representative of their brand. But the reality and what people are experiencing when they try to bank with these guys and what they're now screaming and shouting about on Twitter quite appropriately and rightly, I would suggest, is that you're saying this, but actually this is the reality. And the reality is the brand, not what HSBC think they're communicating. Yeah. So you've taken a a good message and you've made it frustrating for people. And that goes into like this thing about the brand and being in the customer's head is that there are positive and negative associations. They, the positive ones add up slowly, right? Yeah. And they, they take years and years and years to build up. The negative ones to tear your brand down can happen in an instant. And, yeah. and HSBC, this is a good example, right? They probably spent billions over the, la- you know, over the last couple, like decade or two in brand building. Yeah, positive brand associations, and then this one campaign probably will have a negative impact because, you know, London's like a little bit more cognizant of you know gender equity, you know, paying attention to this stuff. It it'll take a hit, and it yeah. doesn't have to be a big hit to like erode significant brand equity. Um, but another interesting thing that you just talked about was you do some research. You do yeah. not too much because it, again, it becomes difficult it becomes expensive um the same 
so two two questions then because the first is the representative sample and i tell people all the time it doesn't matter how much research you do because you if you can get a representative sample which is easy to come by you know in most cases now mm. uh, you can do a good job of understanding your funnel you can get you can draw a decent segmentation because it doesn't need to be perfect right it's like you you know um, eighty percent of it's better than nothing. It, you know, yeah. is the way I try to frame it for people. Um, but how much research do you do you try to get people to do? And then, just so people hear it come from your mouth and not mine, you know, <laughs> explain what a representative sample looks like and how it's not as big as people think it is. No, it's no. Like, the, the example the, I use, just so you have the context. Yeah. I go. I was doing a project here to just to prove the point, and I live in Washington D.C. The metropolitan area has between six and seven million people. To get a representative sample of the DMV, um, it was about three hundred and eighty-five people. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And so and, and I go to UGov, and I can get that done for about probably a couple thousand bucks. Exactly that, and and that's and that's the magic number. That kind of three eighty, four hundred threshold doesn't matter on the size of the market. You've hit that. You've hit that representative sample size. So that is that is very likely. Even if you even if there was this fictional market of every single human being in the world, that would still be around about your four hundred number. And and it's only going to scale down. It doesn't scale down. Uh, it's not a representative effect when you scale down. But we, I mean, we we work in all sorts of niche. Uh, B2B markets, and whether it's 150 to that magical 385 number, it is much more achievable than you think. And I'd also echo your point that some is better than none. It, you're, you you can't understand the market. You can't. You can have uh, you can have educated guesses, and I'm a big fan of of the value of an educated guess. I don't think we're as honest as we should be about instinct and how we use that as marketers. But you can't know the market without going out there and asking questions. Um, and whether you're doing that in a focus group or whether you're doing that at scale in a survey, it's it's whatever is achievable um, within your budget. We typically, we will often engage um, other partner agencies, to, like YouGov, you mentioned, we're a partner agency of theirs. Sometimes the client is already sitting on a vast vast amounts of data of research and we just haven't really looked at it um so research is research is key research is key you need to draw that you know you need to paint that picture and understand what's going on it's also it's also so relative so again your your brand is that there is so much that you can attempt to control but again your brand is at least as uh as the, your, the, the actions of your competitors has just as much effect on your brand as, as you can possibly seek to have. So understand your competitors, understand that whole market. Well, that's like a whole other conversation too, because again, these are um, these are normal conversations I have with people all the time, right? And it's about your competitor set. And what I find is that I'll be generous here. Um, I'll say that ninety-five percent of people don't know who their competitors really are because mm -hmm. they're thinking like, let's say if you're HSBC um, and you think that your, your competitor really would be somebody like Citibank or something. And mm -hmm. it, it, it might not be right. Like if you don't know HSBC, if you know, in the campaign that you li listed, their competitor could be something like Coinbase. It could be like, you know, digital finance and like, you know, Bitcoin, it could be, um, 
you know, traveler's checks. I don't, they still have traveler's checks. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but American Express, remember the classic, like American Express traveler's check. Don't leave home without that thing. Um, it could be, it could be, it could be more Pablo Escobar and digging holes and burying your cash in the fields. Right. There could be anything. I mean, we don't know because the thing about it is like, if you, you know, if you do your research, you find out like some parts of the world are extremely unbanked, right? But they still have HSBCs, uh, you know, and so HSBC, HSBC might think that like, oh, our competition is, you know, whatever it is, but it could be like not doing anything, right? Like mm-hmm. most of the time it's, you're fighting the status quo, which is most of the time doing nothing at all. And so mm-hmm. like understand how to deal with that. Most people, they don't know. And it's like 95% of the time because they've made, they haven't done the research. So then they just make an assumption about their competitors. Yeah. And if you don't know your competitors, it's hard to make a positioning decision and you know you can't make if you can't make a positioning decision you can't really convince somebody to purchase from you at least in my experience because you know you you don't know are they picking me because i'm awesome or are they picking me because you know giles sucks right i mean (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's well yeah yeah (laughs) um so but one thing that we had gone back and forth about over the last couple of weeks as we were setting this up is that you had um you know, you, you've been pretty fortunate to ride out the pandemic so far, um, you know, oh, less disrupted than a lot of people. And you were giving me giving me some examples of people who continue to deliver um, mm. on their strategies during the pandemic. Like they just, you know, we, we set a plan, you know, we had a plan, we set it, we continued to, to go, right? And a lot of people pulled back. What lessons did you learn? from continuing to like invest in marketing and advertising um, to keep delivering on your strategy during the pandemic versus like people who pulled back. Yeah. So the, I mean, the pandemic was and is a complete curveball. Um, and I think it would probably be a bit too arrogant and egotistical to claim everyone should have carried on doing just as they were doing. I mean, right. you know, lives literally at stake and, 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 you know, priorities understandably, not being your business success but from a marketing viewpoint only there as I mentioned before that wiser men like Les Bennett and Peter Field have that empirical evidence here but if we accept that excess share of voice drives market share growth and we should be during times where you're competitors cannot i i understand it almost as a as a stocks and share buying logic in as much as you buy when shares are low and you sell when they're high now i've no real stock market knowledge or training but that seems fairly obvious and and logical to me to me but i mean the vital caveat that, that i mentioned at the start is some are or were more focused on keeping the metaphorical lights on and and reducing job losses and and cutting costs so and that was no doubt the right thing to do in so many instances um but 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 commercials aside and surviving aside a brand with a proper positioning and a proper strategy should really have remained calm from a marketing perspective and adjusted their tactical plans accordingly And, and by that i mean if like one of our clients you were immediately uh, due to send out a highly targeted high cost piece of direct mail hit pause on that fine call a timeout. people aren't in their offices so obviously you don't send that but that has no effect on your strategy just that your chosen tactical executions to deliver against the objectives that are defined in your strategy needed to change and and, and it really was that simple i saw too many people uh selling their 
you know, this is what the pandemic means to your strategy, snake oil, and trying to, you know, say this changes everything. And ultimately, it didn't. In many respects, it changed lives, but it didn't and shouldn't have changed your, your strategy. Now, how do you get, so you, so when we're talking about this strategy too, like now that things have started to, I know that we're still, you know, um, we're not done with the pandemic and I'm sure that at some point we're still going to have some more disruptions due to it. Uh, that just mm. seems to be the nature of what we've dealt with. What, had there been any lessons that you've learned, you know, as people start to reemerge in the market? And specifically, I think, is around this idea of how much has strategy changed for people or how much have people had to change their strategies due to the impact of the pandemic? Oh, I mean, that's going to vary hugely by sector, by industry, by by age of client, by all sorts of variables and factors. I think that, um, funny enough, to, to use an, a, an actual example of ours, we have a wonderful client who... Uh, they they provide music into retail and hospitality sectors, background music, but actually that's just their bread and butter. What they do is much more intelligent and quite scary from a tech perspective of what they can do to improve that experience. And um, the, the we found the pandemic for them. They're a very or they're relatively small player in a very busy marketplace with a huge competitor set. But what we found with them was the pandemic was actually a leveler of sorts in as much as day one of lockdown, everybody else was in day one of lockdown. Everybody else was uh, shutting bars and restaurants and, and retail outlets, etc. So we, with our research hats on, um, decided we would start researching this perceived gap, this perceived experience gap people who typically would go to their local pub, which is in the UK, as I'm sure you're aware, is, 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 is very much part of the community in a lot of small towns and villages, if not the cities, and understand how that was affecting them psychologically. So we ran surveys pre-pubs and retail reopening. And then in the aftermath of pubs reopening in the UK, we set out another representative survey and asked the same people who had been back to pubs that weekend how was it? What did you miss? Were you more anxious? Would it have been improved with music? Would this have, you know, and we, and we really managed to paint a picture. And what that did is it not only gave our client intel, which they could then feed into their own R&D, but it actually we shared it freely with the market because their target customers, whether it's a, you know, a Chick-fil-A type store or whether it's a big retail outlet or a Verizon um they they want that they were no doubt anxious about the state of the market and their customers and we were able to hold up this mirror and say this is what it looks like and that gave them a huge advantage that their competitors who who have an incredible um you know excess share of voice it's it's you know intimidatingly large compared to us suddenly looked around and thought oh wow <laughs> they've, they've done something really smart there because we it was a leveler of sorts so yeah. i think there was opportunity but it didn't change the brand's positioning it didn't change their strategy it was just a tactical execution of us trying to understand what the new normal ish looked like yeah and what i did the research i did some research too with some people and what we we found is that as soon as you you know like, imagine it like a rubber band yeah and so like you're pulling the rubber band back all the way during the lockdowns and like when things are shut down and then you released it. And so like there was this initial 
like huge wave. And then it came started like, and now it's like this and it's still, you, you can still see it. It's still a little bit like this mm. um, and where to it, and it's all contextual again, everything's contextual. Like there'll be yeah. big boosts in demand in certain spots. And then there's absolutely nothing because it switched back to the other side of the, of the curve. And, you know, like this would be like the center. Uh, and it's very interesting because, I mean, this will be, I'll be curious to, to know like what the perception was. The perception here was that like everything was going to open up and things were going to go back to being better than normal. Like it was going to be like the great, like the greatest, the, the roaring twenties all over again, yeah. you know, and the great, the greatest thing we've ever seen. And that, that hasn't been the case. And the, you know, you talked about the psychology and the behavioral aspects. Those are like, have been so important because you have to look at the behaviors not just what people are telling you, but it's like what they're doing and a yeah. strong indicator of, whether or not somebody's going to do something going forward has been like, well, what have they been doing now? Right. And so mm-hmm. like, you see that like, there's still a huge segment of the population. They're putting off business travel, right. Or they're putting off going out to the pubs or they're putting off mm-hmm. going to the theater. Or they're putting off making purchases because you know, people just don't know it's um, you know, so I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, is that similar data and like similar experiences that you're seeing, or is it like a different, um, you know, a different environment altogether. It, it, it again. I mean, it's it's contextual. I know it's, you, it's all like, it depends. The, we've we've spotted. Does. We've yeah, and we've spotted. I mean, we have spotted some improvements, if that's the right word, in both attitudes and behaviours since the first, since maybe uh, what month are we in now? So about a year ago, when it was uh, things started to slowly open up, and actually people are much more. Uh, confident about going out and, and, and returning to older habits. That said, I'm talking about averages and averages are dangerous because you could drown in oh, a, yeah. you know, a, a two centimeter average uh, pool of water, but the, the, there's spikes in. So for, for example, university towns and cities have got huge spikes of people returning to pubs because you know what, you know what the youth are like, don't you, Dave? But uh, <laughs> there's, there's generational issues, there's uh, or, or differences, there's all sorts of different attitudinal data there. Um, but on the whole, if I can make a broad sweeping statement, things are returning to normal, maybe not quite the roaring 20s, but they're not as far off as I expected them to be. Um, which is, which I don't know, I don't believe is a bad thing. Um, I, I, I was at uh, the Spurs game last week and it was packed and it felt surreal and it felt strange and it felt weird. And it was a little bit, I was a little bit anxious, but Harry Kane scored a hat-trick and I soon forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, was, it was a remedy. The first big game I went to, I went to, uh, it was game seven of the 76ers and the Hawks. And it was packed. It was, it was indoors. It was sold out. It was at that, that point in time when uh, everything was going to be back to normal. Like you, there, there was the height of the optimism that like everything was behind us. Um, yeah. That was like a little overwhelming. And so, I, so when you yeah. say that, it's completely, um, I get it. Now, you talked about this attitudinal thing of returning to normal, and I slipped it in there because, you know, in the notes I made, we were talking about effectiveness and, like, some of these things. But yeah. one thing that I didn't talk about, and, and now I know you've opened the door for me, and I know that, like, this is not going to jam you up in any way, shape, or form, is segmentation, right? And, like, you know, so you're talking about, like, it depends on, like, age and all these things. Should I be yeah. segmenting based on demographics? 
Should I? <laughs> or, it, I mean, or you know, there, there's a case for that if you're selling something that is 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 appropriately segmented due to demographics. If you're if you're selling stair lifts, for example, you might find there's a heavy age slant there. But I think as long as there's something meaningful about the the measure you're using, crack on. But uh, often it's not, or at least it's overstated. I think the demographic one. Like what John said, because I, you know, I tell people, I go, age can be totally fine. It yeah. depends. People don't like it because I, I think you give them the same answer. I go, it depends. It depends. It depends. Yeah. It always depends. Now, all right. So, two final. Or actually, I got three final questions for you because now I've kept you far too long. Um, first <laughs> off, uh, how can people? Because this is going to be a lot of people who listen or who um, are in arts and entertainment, <clears throat> sports. Um, you know, and so sometimes, especially in the states, uh, probably in some of the areas outside of L- London, um, you know, some of the like more uh, less metropolitan areas, like outside of um, Sydney and Melbourne, uh, they don't have huge budgets. You know, they're relying on advice from pe- from peaceful places and things that um, may not give them the best ideas. Mm. How can people spot marketing BS? Mm. There are. There's a few ways. I'll I'll filibuster for you to give you a second to collect yourself because (laughs) one thing that we totally already brought up too was anybody who's speaking in absolutes. 100%. I mean, that's like the clearest way. I I can't tell you the last, I mean, I can tell you if something's absolutely a bad idea most of the time, but like, will something absolutely work? I can never tell you if it's going to absolutely work. Yeah. I'd say there's a few ways. That's definitely one of them. I worry that some of them rely on marketing knowledge um, and, you know, that, uh, across job titles that don't necessarily require marketing knowledge. So that isn't particularly helpful. I would I would check the job title of the person who you're listening to. If they're a growth hacker or a marketing ninja or a self-appointed, I don't know, blockchain guru, the likelihood they're spouting bullshit is probably higher. Um, even then, it's not fail-proof. I, I gave a presentation uh, pre-pandemic. I was on my way to this huge multinational insurance company who had uh, invited Gaspin to present. And I have a slide in our creds, which is a bit of poking fun at redacted LinkedIn titles that have those very name, uh, very name, very titles. And I noticed that the guy I was presenting to, their marketing director, was a ninja himself. So I had to scramble that one. (laughs) (laughs) So I took that slide out. But people, people dealing in absolutes should be treated with real suspicion. Um, It depends is often the right answer to most questions in marketing, but it doesn't make for a good podcast. So uh, so people preach absolutes, don't they, and definites, which which can't which cannot exist. And it's why we all get uh, we all get bike shedding. Are you familiar with the term bike shedding? So bike shedding it describes our tendency to uh, to devote a disproportionate amount of time to menial and trivial matters while leaving really important stuff unattended. And it originally uh, is termed from a story about a committee that had to approve plans for a nuclear power station. And since they knew very little about nuclear power stations, um, they talked about it very briefly and then simply approved the recommendation that was put in front of them. But next they had to approve plans for where to build the employee's bike shed. (laughs) And they all knew bike sheds, they'd seen a bike shed, they'd probably used a bike shed. And they talked about it for hours, arguing about everything from construction methods to paint choice and everything in between. 
Um, and, and I think that's what that manifests itself in marketing into questions we all get asked. And sometimes we might ask them ourselves with good intentions, such as is HTML better than plain text emails or is 10 second video better than one minute video? And it's the wrong question. And you know, shit in equals shit out, regardless of those specifics. And to give you an example, I love uh, Bob Hoffman's weekly emails. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't care less if they arrived in HTML, plain text, or he shouted them through my letterbox, which, you know, isn't beyond Bob, let's be honest, um, <laughs> because it's because it's great. And but doing something great and something interesting and something memorable is really, really hard. So we get caught up in the meaningless detail to feel like we're useful. And it's a really huge trap. It's a really huge trap. So um, that's a good like, point too, you know, because people ask me like, oh, why haven't you upgraded like the production or like, anything around the podcast? They go, because I don't need to. People listen. <laughs> they like the thing, the um, sort of DIY aspect of it, people dig. And I go, it's effective. You People listen to it. I see the numbers. If I yeah. changed it, you might not listen to it because then it would be more produced and more, you know. I'm playing with bells and whistles, not giving you something that's useful, that's good. It's the same with Bob Dino. Banner is the best. Exactly. Exactly. Whatever that thing is, he uses like, what is it, like blog live? (laughs) Like the (laughs) oldest one I'm going. It's It's terrible. (laughs) Honestly, it would score lower than any other email newsletter I think I've ever subscribed to in my life. And yet I anticipate it landing in my inbox every Sunday evening. Read it every Sunday. So, yeah, well, there you go. And there you go. And therefore, I mean, that's a good example of a type of bike shedding thing. And I understand it because you, but it's, but it's just the wrong metric. Again, it's a bit like the whole efficiency versus effectiveness metric. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the late great David Abbott had a great saying of, of again, I'm going to curse. Apologies to your listeners, but shit that arrives at the speed of light is still shit when it gets there. So if you're if you're if you're trying to just make something more efficient and more efficient, it, that has little value if the, the the thing you're sending down the chute is poor. And that I think is is key. And interrogate the data. We mentioned it earlier. Yeah. There is so much data that does the rounds, and it's easy to twist the data. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you if you know Wima Schneider's um, uh, or not. He's he's oh, eat your greens. Yeah, eat your greens. Curated eat your greens. He's he's also known as Banana Man. Um, he he told me a story once. He'd seen a headline which was influencer marketing increases in-flight beer sales by over a hundred percent, and he thought, wow, that's um doesn't sound right. And he interrogated the data as we all should. <laughs> And he discovered it was based on a on one flight, and it was one. I think it was a transatlantic flight, and uh, they had engaged an influencer marketing type person, and the campaign that he uh, that he delivered increased sales of this particular beer, which was on the plane, uh, from two cans to five cans. <laughs> so, so okay, yes, he did, but. Take it with context, understand the context, interrogate the data, and don't feel bad about questioning it because in you know, out of context, that headline is very misleading. Yeah. All right, then the final one, because now you've talked, well, actually, I, I'm gonna try to work into uh, one, another favorite shit in, shit out uh, uh, <laughs> quote, which, uh, but I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it, so I'm gonna have to save it for next time. Uh, but you, you talked about the influencer marketing, and one thing that people <clears throat> all the time are like, I get, I don't know how many emails a day about this. And then I always reply with, it depends. 
um, is yeah. engagement because people just like have, again, it's the commodification of the whole marketing process. It yeah. is the struggle to put strategy before tactics. It is, um, actually, I can work it in here. It's like Mark Ritson says, we've become so consumed with the pipes that the shit goes into, we forgot to pay attention to what the shit we're making is. And um, so I got it uh, in there. Uh, so, but nice. where does, you know, how can you tell people that the engagement thing is meaningless unless it's, unless it's meaningful in, in, in a way so they don't hear it from me? Because it's not that engagement is meaningless all the time. It's that it's overweighted in most cases because people don't understand why they're looking for engagement or what they look for the engagement for. It's, it doesn't mean anything because it could mean everything. And that's the trouble with engagement as a, as a metric. It literally could mean everything, every type of engagement you can imagine, and therefore it means nothing. As a metric, it's woolly, it's ambiguous, and it's slippery, and it completely removes context. And as I said earlier, there's um, the, the, the great Jeremy Bullmore talks about CEOs trying to get their head around brands, and it makes their heads hurt because brands are complicated and irrational, etc. They, the HSBC example is, is, is a good one, but there's real comfort in figures, which is why I think a lot of bike shedding uh, occurs around these types of engagement metrics. So there's comfort in figures, there's comfort in numbers, then hence engagement, um, but not all things that can be measured matter and not all things that matter can yeah. be measured is again, another a far wiser person than me said, but it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be considered when the brain is given a spreadsheet of numbers because we're so desperately in need of things making sense that when you see a number, you subconsciously try to ascertain if it's good or bad. I was talking to a client recently about their website bounce rate. You know, we're, we're talking Google Analytics, you know, day one training yep. here. Um, if anyone's not sure, the bounce rate is a is percentage of traffic that lands on the page of your website and leaves without clicking through or browsing anywhere else on the site. Hence, they bounce in and out. And a bounce rate is neither good or bad. Again, it depends. So if your SEO is effective and someone wanted to check, say, the price or availability of a product, they Googled for that product, they landed on the page, they found out what they wanted to find and they left. I would suggest that's a good user journey. However, um, if your core objective is to get people to stay on the site and consume content like say Facebook's objective, mm -hmm. then it could be a bad thing. And that's the trouble. Engagement doesn't mean good or bad. Um, and it's not only vague, but it's not even universally understood or, or, or used. So until recently, we are assured, but I'm, I'm, I'm dubious, what Google would refer to as an engagement or an impression even was vastly different to what Facebook classed as an impression, which gave Facebook this huge inflated uh, metric that looked like it was almost too good to be true because it was too because good it was. to be true. Exactly that. And I yeah. think historically, the industry used to count an, an impression as above 50% of an ad is visible for at least one second, whereas Facebook classed it as above zero pixels are visible for above zero seconds. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out that that's two very different metrics. And so that, that vague and ambiguous measure is really, really difficult to treat with any confidence. There's a, well, there's a story I've, that's, I've, I've- That's a good point too, because if people don't necessarily are, are gonna miss the point of that, which it means that like you could get huge Facebook engagement numbers for something you posted and it would mean nothing because all one thing, one single pixel on the page could show up for a millisecond. 
<clears throat> because yeah. you clicked on the wrong link or you clicked on the wrong thing and you're getting charged for it. You're getting and you're, you're getting the impression that your ads are either working or not working and it's meaningless. Yeah. And I want people exactly to just that. recognize what that's exactly what that means because I don't want people, because when you say that Facebook's basically um, in danger of becoming a fraud machine, it's stuff like this because it's like, so um, I think it's unethical, but that's uh, for other people yeah. to argue. Um, it's dishonest though. And people can't measure their campaigns correctly. Yeah, and there's there's no independent body which has access to verify the metrics that they're presenting. And it doesn't mean that if you mark your own homework, you're going to do it with a bias, but it certainly gives you the opportunity to hoodwink <laughs> an entire industry, <laughs> uh, which is how I passed. But there's, there's a story I've told before on Call to Action, and it's one that Tom Goodwin told me when I, when I um, spoke to him. And it was to do with a car he had recently purchased. And it was his dream car ever since he was eight years old. And because when he was eight years old, he was set a school task of, of something he had to, he had to uh, research. And, and this project was all about uh, various sports cars, essentially. So as an eight-year-old, he wrote emails or a letter to several manufacturers and only BMW replied. And they sent him this lovely, sexy magazine full of sexy sports cars. And ever since that day, he's wanted to own a particular sports car of theirs. Now, between being eight and I think Tom, uh, apologies if I get this wrong, Tom, is is 40-ish, maybe a bit older. Um, in that time, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he uh, um, he is no doubt in, engaged with ads, and those ads no doubt took credit if they could for his ultimate purchase. But as he swears blind, the reason he bought that is for something that nobody measured or could measure, and it's to do with that story when he was eight years old. So that again will show that the 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 engagement metrics that might exist and be assigned to Tom as a customer and someone who browses an ad is is actually is meaningless, but it's a number. And we can all talk about numbers, but we can't talk about the irrational side of marketing as easily. So we typically do. Yeah, that, that thing is a great story. And I see it, too, because everybody goes, Tesla doesn't do marketing the way you like advertising, the way people want them to do marketing and advertising. I would actually say they do more marketing and PR than people yeah. want to give them credit for. Yes. And, but a lot of it's like that BMW story that Tom shares. Because like my son, he's now 11. Um, he, his dream car is he wants a Tesla. And, and part of it's like because they learned about electrifying cars in elementary school. And then um, uh, yeah, I took, I have a Tesla and I took it in and they gave me a little small model three for it because when he was like nine. <laughs> and so he has it still on his thing. It's the same thing though. It's like, it'll yeah. never show up. But the thing is, is like, in his mind, yeah. he's like, you know, because I'll ask him all the time, and he'll and he goes, "Tesla's the best man." He goes, "I just love the Tesla." It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, and he's eleven now, and he's been saying that for three years, and it's um, but no, no ad, no, no measure would ever capture that. Uh, that is, yeah, that's, that's bang true. on. That is, is bang on, and and that could be very easily interpreted as being a trivial thing, but in your in your son's mind, that it's was not, payday. It's the it was most massive. important thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Th that's like the, uh, that that brand purpose or like brand, which is mostly BS anyway. <laughs> but it's like where the space that most brands take up is like much smaller than people imagine. But like in a case like that, that's where one place where it does right. It's an aspirational mm -hmm. thing, and it, you know it sticks with people forever. Most of the time, though, nobody cares one one way or the <laughs> other, right? Yeah. And, and and you have to know though if you have something aspirational like that, which is you know cases yeah. like 
Australia, the country of Australia has like some of the best ad campaigns in the world because like everything about Australia feels aspirational and like they have like some great brand codes that stick in the kangaroo, the koalas, the Sydney Opera House, the the, the, the Harbour Bridge, right? The whole deal, um, you know, yeah. and those things stick and those are brands that do have impact and you, you just have to know what these things are. Um, all right. So did I had you, two quick. Did you ever see? I must tell you, Dave, because half my family are either Australians or they now reside there. But did you ever see the ad that Veet ran? Veet, I assume, is a is a is a brand in the states too. Uh, you know, uh, hair removal cream. Okay. That they that they ran in the national press in Australia on uh, President Obama's inauguration. Uh, no, I did not. I have to look that up. Front page ad. It just said goodbye, Bush. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Nowhere so, else but Australia would have allowed that ad to run. It's so it. good. All <laughs> right, so I asked. I had some. We had some listener questions. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so I have two of them. I, might, I may have more, but I, I was trying not to check the Twitter machine while we were talking here. Um, but the first one comes. I'm going to ask you first. Uh, Graham Fraser wants to know: Do you have a gazebo that he can buy? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Graham. <laughs> no, I do not have a gazebo. I've never owned a gazebo, and despite my best mate claiming I uh, I look like the sort of guy that would own a gazebo, um, uh, I, <laughs> <These definitely laughs> I both of these fall under like totally in jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Apologies. You can click on no, now. They... You really totally got too far. <laughs> You've gone the too second... far, Dave. Yeah, we've done, we've definitely. Uh, I, I definitely, I, I sold a false promise. I said it was going to be completely yeah. serious and I said it wasn't going to be at all serious. And then in the middle, we were very <laughs> serious. And so now we close out with like completely yeah. unserious again. Um, so then the next, the last one then is like, oh, so when shouldn't I start with why? And oh. I, got, uh, I forget who, who sent that in, but you know him. He's your, he's your friend. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's a director at Wavemaker. He's just joined from Mediacom. He was global digital director of Mediacom. He's a brilliantly, annoyingly smart bloke called Andrea Spurrier Dawes, ASD. Um, and he hosts a fantastic Spurs fan podcast called Echoes of Glory. So I must plug that before I, yes. uh, I have a pop at him. So I, 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 <laughs> he, he's, That's he right, because you're a regular guest. I, I, I am. I haven't been on recently, but I but I but I uh, I have guested and I look forward to doing that again soon. But he he's challenged me on, on this before. And I think the answer depends slightly on what he means, because I have no issue with purpose and individual purpose. And I think anything that helps you live a good life and not behave like a dick is a good thing and some people that's purpose some people that's religion some people that's faith i have no issues with that i have an issue with brands using it uh, disingenuously as a ploy to attract um customers and i think that starting with why if i've understood the question appropriately makes little yeah, well, oh, no. makes little <laughs> makes little to no sense if you're a large organisation that employs, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people. It makes no sense to have that purpose. In some instances, whether you are the body shop or, say, Patagonia, albeit that I think some people would challenge that, then purpose is at your core, and I salute you for that. But I would suggest for the large majority of brands, purpose is doesn't or that type of purpose doesn't really have a role i i've i've actually got a screen grab of something that i typically go to if you would just 
um, indulge me and allow me to read this out. This is this is from Steve Harrison's um, recent book, and it to me sums up commercial purpose in a way that I hope makes marketers less ashamed of what they do for a living. And I think people tend to seek another type of purpose without really understanding the commercial purpose and what that means. And Steve brilliantly says, if we doubt the importance of this, our commercial purpose, we should remind ourselves that every time someone buys something we've advertised, we enable someone else to get paid. And not just the person in the shop where it was purchased, that sale pays the wages of the person who made the thing or grew it. The person who packaged it, the person in our warehouse where it was stored, the person who delivered it to the shop and the person who cleaned the shop after closing time. And to me, that is, is a you know hook, line and sinker. To me, that commercial purpose demonstrates that commercial purpose at its heart has the other purpose that lots of people are seeking in their life. And I don't think we should be ashamed of it. No, no. Again, exactly what Giles said, because I mean, that's the way I've approached it. And it's why I spend a lot, even more time now with like small businesses and entrepreneurs, because I get it right. Like as a marketer, if you can market and sell effectively, you know, mm. and you can sell market and sell products and services, there's a chain chain reaction that occurs. And it's like it allows you to continue to do something that hopefully you enjoy doing or that you like doing, yeah. or it allows you to, you know, create a better life for your family or, um, you know, grow a small business, right. Or do whatever. Yeah. And to me, there's no higher calling because it allows people to have a, you know, a meaningful life. And it like, you know, I don't like to say it necessarily it's purpose. It's just like going, it's just so much better when you see people are able to enjoy their work and then, you know, and they aren't frustrated because they don't know how to market and sell and they, you know, or they aren't getting the results they want. And, yeah. you know, to give people that gift, right, of proper marketing, proper strategy, understanding how to do this stuff well, there's no greater joy because it's life affirming, number one, but it's life changing for people, too. And it's the purest form of purpose because, again, Mark Ritson says it best because he goes, why did you get in the market? It's because where the fucking money is. And uh, before I even heard him say it. That was always my thing, right? It's like when I knew that growing up where I did in the South, that like the only way I was getting out is if I could sell my way out, right? So I had to go where the money was. And that was and that yeah. was like the key thing. And, you know, helping people understand that because there's so much myth-making around marketing and selling and sales. And I know the one thing we aren't going to get to touch on is like I saw you have tw uh, pinned a tweet around pricing which I think we could mm. probably go on for a long time because um, mm. the value-based pricing, understanding the tangible and intangible values, uh, don't discount, all these things. Like, I mean, they're in your thread, that which I'll uh, send out a little bit later. Um, incredibly valuable to go all along with this. Yeah. But it's just like, market to me, marketing is the most magical and greatest thing in the, in the world. And not yeah. because it's like... Um, you know, it, the ins and outs, it's because of what it does for people. Because every idea never takes hold if you don't market it and sell it. You know, uh, there's no business that happens, so then there's no, like, livelihood, No, you know, nothing that happens without marketing and selling. Um, you know, and then it's given me everything, right? It's connected me with people like you. It's connected me with people just all over the world. Um, you know, so, I, again, if that's purpose, then I, I like that purpose. But, like... Um, <laughs> 
my beer doesn't need purpose. My beer needs the purpose of tasting great. <laughs> exactly, exactly that. To dare yeah. to do sometimes rings untrue to me is what I'm telling you. <laughs> it might be well purpose, said. but it sounds like BS. Um, I, you usually uh, dedicate uh, uh, the podcast episode uh, to someone. And um, I actually, I'll, I'll let you dedicate this one in, in your honor because, you know, I am a big fan of call to action. But also, I want to oh. dedicate it to. Um, oh, and then we got to plug Adele writes an ad. We have to huh. we have to plug Adele. Um, but I, I want to dedicate it to Ryan Wallman because because of Ryan. Ryan's been on the podcast. I, I know you now, so that's uh, and that's been a great, a lot of fun for me. It's been a great honor. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's really and it's been really cool. I think this might be the longest podcast I've ever done. So, um, so I would dedicate it to Ryan just for that reason alone. Um, and if you have somebody yeah. you'd like to dedicate it to, since you don't get to dedicate maybe on other people's podcasts, yeah. we will dedicate this episode to someone here. Nice. Well, I'll definitely echo that. I, I adore Ryan. I adore that man. He is a wonderful. We got bloke, so drunk the last time I was in Melbourne. We were like, did you? We oh. were out like so late. <laughs> yeah, he'll do that. He'll do yeah. that. Liver damaged woman. I uh, he's he's a great man, and I will I will take the opportunity to dedicate it. Uh, quite predictably, I suppose, to my two little girls because they are bonkers and they are mad and they they are inspirational in a way like unintended inspiration comes from my five and four year old girls because they don't they don't know what stupid questions are yet and they are full of them so they will for example have a go at the sun if it's still in the sky at night time or first or more likely if we go to school and the moon's still in the sky they will get angry because it's the sun's turn. And it's ridiculous, trivial, stupid, silly things like that that inspires me to do silly projects like you mentioned the Adele Wrights and Ad. And I just think there's so much, um, I think as adults, you lose the appreciation and magic of silliness and playfulness. And I heard someone say, Uh, fairly recently that having a kid allowed them to be a kid again and there's so much in that that is so valuable that I never anticipated um, in becoming a dad so I think I need to dedicate it to them and Ryan who Ryan I will adopt you as one of my uh, children if you are up for it but he has now he has he has us as his two dads. We're both adults. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I think oh, there's a whole lot of people that if you actually ever meet him in person, like the whole world wants to adopt him. Because it's like you, you go out and like you, you, you get drunk and like you and he's like he's just he's as funny in person as you you would expect him to be, if not yeah. funnier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, I wanna thank you so much for doing this thing. I, I had a great time and I do think yeah. it's what we're gonna ever have done. Ah, sorry about that. It's me wanging on, isn't it? But thank you, Dave. It's been, it's been a real pleasure, mate. A real treat. Well, what did you think of my conversation with Giles Edwards? Let me know. Send me an email. It's daviddavewakeman.com. It was a longer episode, but I hope it was worth it for you. Uh, check out my website, davewakeman.com. Uh, check out gas4.com so you can find out what Giles is working on. They do some really incredible work. As I mentioned at the start, get the Talking Tickets newsletter. Right, go to my website. There is a pop up for newsletters. Get it, do it now. Every Friday, top stories with analysis, action items, the whole deal. It's great. Check the show notes, do me a solid. Check those show notes, fill out that questionnaire. Take you about two or three minutes, if that, to help me deliver better guests, better content, uh, better the whole deal. 
right? More of what you need, all of that crap, okay? All of it, right? Uh, make sure that you check out my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. As I mentioned before at the start, since tickets have gone back on sale after the lockdowns, depending on the month, people have been taking up refund protection between 30 and 70% of the time. That is a tremendous increase in acceptance rate and uptake because it's driven by behavior and it's driven by the feeling that people want to make sure that they have certainty in their purchases. It's a behavioral change. It's very important to note. Visit them at bookingprotect.com. Reach out, find out how you can offer it. It'll also enable you to create a brand new revenue stream for your organization. So bookingprotect.com, check it out. Uh, check out Activity Stream, activitystream.com. Uh, we talked about magic moments. Uh, Martin has been on this podcast to talk magic moments more than anyone, I believe, except for maybe Corey Gibbs. But, you know, when you go to college with somebody, it, that's how it works. Uh, activitystream.com, check out the new Activate email marketing platform. One thing I try to tell people is like, I hope that you've been able to communicate with your audience throughout the pandemic. If you haven't, you probably really should be doing something as fast as possible now. Activate will help you understand what you can say to re-engage and reconnect with your audience and how you can move people towards um, getting back engaged with your products and your tickets and your services um, so that you can begin to deliver magic moments for them once again. So activitystream.com it is a tremendous tool. Uh, finally, last week, on last week's episode, I talked to Simon Severino from strategysprints.com about net promoter score. Uh, it was an incredible um, note on why net promoter score matters and why it's important. For a while now, I've been talking about the worksheet that I created with my friends at Eventelect. Um, it is a simple tool. It is one number that is can guide your business. It can tell you a lot. If the number is increasing, your business is typically growing. If you're number is negative, it tells you probably there's some problems, right? It's a great, great resource. It is a great way to conduct customer surveys and it is incredibly powerful to help you know exactly what customers want, need, and desire from you. Ventilect has had incredible success from it and it has allowed them to continue to develop new ideas new processes and new patterns um, to help give their customers better value. I use it all the time as well. It is an incredible tool. We created this worksheet that give you the three essential questions you should ask, how to analyze it, what it means, the whole deal. It's free. Just send me an email, daviddavewakeman.com, and I will send it to you. As always, I want to thank everybody for being here and listening. If you dig the podcast, please share it with somebody. Uh, rate and review it on your favorite podcast app, you know, subscribe the whole deal. Um, but thank you again for being here. Like I've said before, the numbers are still, uh, people listen. It's very, con you know, it's not exactly the same, but it's very consistent with what it was before the pandemic. And for that, I'm grateful because it's nice to know that something I'm doing here is being helpful and useful to you as you and your business try to recover from the pandemic. Um, I'm always here for you. So if you're still struggling a little bit or you're feeling the challenge, you've challenged, we just need to like vent, you know how to find me. So until next time, thank you so much for being here. And I will talk to you again soon.